Good morning. We are going to get started here just to help you out, making sure that you are in the right workshop. This is Home Field Advantage with Joel Stepanek. If you are not supposed to be or you chose another uh, workshop, raise your hand and we'll come over and see where you need to be. Otherwise, I'd like to welcome you here again this morning. My name is Tori Wynn, um, and I am really excited uh, that I get to introduce Joel <laughs> this morning after, after our keynote. Um, before we begin, we, as always, we begin uh, building our home field advantage with prayer. So let's just take a moment and create a space in our hearts and our minds for what we need to hear today, whatever that might be that the Holy Spirit wants us to know this day. Loving God, bless us as we gather today to do your holy work. Direct our steps so we may walk humbly in your ways. Teach us to be merciful as you, our God, are merciful. Lead us to work for justice and peace as Christian disciples in mission. Guide us to take your message of mercy beyond Sunday and out into our homes and communities. Grant us the gift of your goodness, your unfailing mercy, and your compassionate love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It, again, it is my honor to introduce Joel Stepanek. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Hey. <clears throat> so uh, what I like to do for workshops is provide a little bit of interaction. It's great that you all got notebooks because I like you to leave with something, like some tangible things. So I'll throw out some questions for you through this workshop, but I'm also going to throw out a couple of things for you to discuss once in a while. So if you would, just take a second. Um, I know that we rearranged since we're in a workshop. It just take about a minute to introduce yourself to the people around you because there may be a couple questions I throw out that just say, hey, discuss this with the one or two people around you. You're like, but I wanted to just sit quietly. Take about a minute to introduce yourself to the uh, people around you. Hey, I'm Joel. Good to meet you, Patty. Absolutely. You too. Thank you. Stellar. So we'll take a second to wrap that up. Um, there are a lot of ways in which we encounter God's grace and God's God's glory kind of in our world. Um, and I talked a little bit about wanting to share that when we have that joy in our heart in the keynote. What I'd like to do since we're in a little bit smaller environment since we've met some people already is I want you to take a second to think about one place in the past year where you've kind of seen God's glory manifested. It could be in your own life. It could be in the life of somebody else. But maybe it's something miraculous. Maybe it's something small. Where's some place where you've, where you've encountered God uh, or God's grace, God's glory in some way? Think about that for a second.
And if you would, just with one or two people around you, go ahead and share whatever came to mind. Take a second to share a little bit of that glory story. Where did you encounter God, God's grace, God's glory? Just to take a second to share that. And with the one or two people around you, we're going to have a couple questions like this, but I'll give you about 90 seconds to two minutes to do that. Go ahead. And take just a second to wrap up. You're sharing. These are great things. Yeah, I'd, as you wrap up, I'd encourage you to think about this stuff just as a community, in your local small groups, and your family, uh, after Mass, to share these things once in a while. I, I love the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And the book of the Acts of the Apostles is a book about people who were so enamored and taken by what God was doing in their midst that they just could not be contained. The stories of the early church are incredible, but they did things like this. I imagine they'd get together uh, to share in a meal, to celebrate liturgy, to uh, pray together, and they would say, do you know what happened today? Like, this is the way that God worked today. This is, you know, Philip being like, I met this, this guy along the road, and I interpreted Isaiah to him, and uh, and then I baptized him, and then I disappeared, and I wound up here, <laughs> which is a, a wonderful narrative out of Acts, or Peter saying, yeah, we, we were taken in, and we, we professed boldly to the Sanhedrin, and, and God delivered us out of prison, and um, sharing those things is, is important for just reminding us who we are as a community and, and why we do what we do. I had an experience a little while ago uh, with my daughter, Sophia. I've got a picture of we can throw up. Uh, 
on here. That's Sophia Grace. She loves Target <laughs> already, yeah. And uh, Sophia just turned a year. She is adorable. She is strong and brave because uh, her older brother is just a brute and has no idea how to, you know, deal with a young, tiny human being the way that we do. And she just is, is delightful. A couple, of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, as I'm thinking about it, time moves so quickly. One night, we were ever all getting ready to go to bed, and she had a little bit of a runny nose, and uh, we just thought, you know, she's teething. When you actually think about it, if you've ever thought about child teething, it's really horrifying, isn't it? Like, you know, teeth are ripping through your gums, and, and we're all like, oh, that's so cute. Here's a chew toy. And, you know, in their head, they're probably like, please rip this out of me. So we just think it's that. And she goes to bed, and she's coughing a little bit uh, through the night. She's up on and off. I'm waking up with her. She feels warm. We take her temperatures about 102, and which at that point is not, you know, super concerning. We're like, maybe we should take her in the morning. I had the first shift that night till about 3.30 in the morning. My wife takes over around 6. I'm waking up, and her cough sounds awful, and she's starting to wheeze a little bit. And I'm like, eh, we'll go, we'll go into urgent care. So urgent care place just down the road. We get in. She's got my daughter in, and you know it's going to be a long morning when the receptionist says, why don't you just skip checking in and just go right back? So we do. So my wife takes her back right away. Uh, we haven't filled out anything. The doctor looks at her. She's got a 104-degree temperature, um, 103. It was like 103.4, getting up there. And they give her some Tylenol to try to bring down her temperature. I'm like, well, we're pretty sure she has croup, which, you know, for those of you who've been parents and have experienced that, that's, that's nothing. That's like not even a common cold with our bolstered, you know, high immune systems for a baby that's dangerous. Uh, and she has strider, which is a constriction of the airways. So she's starting to wheeze. We're going to try breathing treatment. So they try a breathing treatment, and uh, it's not working. Nothing's, nothing's working. And about 45 minutes later, we take her temperature again, and instead of going down, it's gone up. Now we have a problem. So we're concerned, we're worried, and the doctor's like, well, why don't you go out and fill out your insurance paperwork, which we still haven't done, so I go out to do that. Uh, and the doctor and my wife are talking through things, and, you know, of course it's in the moment when you're separated as a couple that, you know, that you hear things like, we may need to send you in an ambulance. Her oxygen levels are dropping. And I'm out there filling out paperwork. And my wife's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Where's my husband? We need to talk about this. They check her oxygen levels. The first time they check them, they're low. They're like oscillating, so she's not necessarily getting enough air. Uh, they check another machine, and they're a little bit better. So the doctor says, look, here's the deal. I'm, I think you're fine to drive her to Children's, um, to Children's Hospital. We need to go right there. We can't make any stops, and you know, because I, I don't think you need to go in an ambulance yet. I think she's fairly stable, but I don't know for how long. So we're like, okay. Now, typically, my wife drives the car because she gets very car sick. Um, but, you know, father, paternal instincts kick in. I'm like, why don't you give me the keys? She's like, please don't. I'm like, yes, keys. <laughs> Just look in the distance. We get to Children's Hospital, same thing. They admit us right away, um, and she's not breathing really well. They're freaked out, and they give her another breathing treatment, and it works, at least for the time being. And I'll never forget, just holding her. She's so hot. Um, just praying, like, Lord, you know, help me be a good parent. Because there's not a whole lot in that moment that I can do. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, like being with somebody you love who is struggling to breathe, who's struggling to, to catch something so basic as their breath. In ministry, we encounter a lot of people like that. I'm thankful that day because it showed me something about the church and God's glory was revealed there. What's beautiful about the whole experience is they thought they were going to need to keep it actually for overnight and maybe even for a couple of days, but that first breathing treatment worked and they didn't expect it to. 
I always love the postscript you get from doctors where it's like, well, here's what we were actually thinking when we were very calm. We thought you were going to be here for a couple days. And they're like, wow, that's really amazing. That's, that's great. I was struck by how many different people were involved in the process of helping help my daughter breathe. Because it was the nurses, it was the receptionists, it was the doctor, it was, it was the uh, respiratory specialist, it was the, um, the, the, the pediatric nurses, the licensed nurse practitioner, like all of these people were involved in helping my daughter breathe. Something so fundamental. As a parish community and as a ministry, this is why we function. Because there are people outside of these doors who are suffocating or struggling to breathe. If you've ever had that experience of someone trying to catch their breath, of wheezing, of, of trying, of straining, you know how terrifying that is. But our function, our purpose, is to be cajuns of the Holy Spirit in the world, one of which we have an image for the Holy Spirit, is breath. And that's what we kind of broke open in this keynote, but this is what's important to take with us in this workshop as we look at some practical ways that we're going to do this individually and as a parish community. Our ministry, all of our ministry, is oriented towards death. Let that sink in for a second. All ministry is oriented towards death. That means that we get a first breath. That's the great common denominator. Every person in this room had a first breath. And the second great denominator is everybody will have a last one. And what we do in between to serve, to love, to bring the glory of God into the world, to uphold the dignity of our brothers and sisters and help them know Jesus so they could have that abundant life, well, that's up to us. Because outside these doors, there are people who desperately need the breath that we understand and can bring. But it takes all of us. It doesn't just take one of us. It's not just one piece. It's like, oh, I can go out and do this. Just like it took many doctors and many physicians and a whole team of people, it takes a whole community and a whole team of people to really make this happen in the world. So I want to examine that practically. Real quick, by a show of hands, how many people are involved in some ministry at St. Patrick's? You're signed up for like an official ministry. Oh, great. That's many of us. Wonderful. So we're going to hit some things that are applicable to your ministries, but I want to hit things that are applicable to each of us personally. And I want to look at those three things that I touched on at the end of the keynote, our local community, our household, and our parish. What are things that we can do here? So I want you to think of this, and you can write this down. You can uh, brainstorm this for a second. I want you to ask yourself right now, how does my ministry, or how do I personally, if you're not involved in a ministry at the parish, impact the local community. So if you're involved in a ministry at the parish, I want you to think with that context. If you're not, you're like, I'm here, I'm, I'm a parishioner, and I just want to learn how to love the Lord a little bit more. I want you to ask, how am I personally investing in the community? What interaction do I have? What interaction does my ministry have within the local community context? I want you to just brainstorm a couple of ways that, that those things interface. You think through a couple of those things. You can continue writing as I'm talking. I would challenge you, if you're involved in a ministry here at the parish, to encourage your ministry group.
group, whether it's the ushers, hospitality, uh, RCIA stuff, baptism prep, confirmation, um, you know, bereavement ministry, whatever, to say, what is the one thing we could do or one or two things we could do a year that allow our group to engage the local community? Is there an act of service? Is there another group that we get involved in, another charitable group that we go and we participate in? Do we do some sort of drive that doesn't necessarily benefit only St. Pat's but benefits the broader community? How are we interfacing outside of this? What's wonderful is you have groups of people in your ministries already built in who can go so you don't have to go do things alone. Hey, we're going to go spend some time volunteering at a warming shelter. Like That's what we're going to do as this group of people. Because it's not just about how we serve here, but it's how we take what we're doing here out there. And the great thing about going with a group when you have your ministries do those things or sponsor those things or serve in those ways or interact with the local community is you go as a very strong representation of St. Patrick's Catholic community. People get excited about that. Other organizations start to say, wow, you're not just kind of in this for you. You're in this for us. This is about all the different pieces. And it allows you to encounter people you wouldn't normally encounter. For you personally, what ways are you interjecting in the local community just as a whole? Are there things you're doing personally to serve? I think one of the ways that we really tithe well and that the Lord blesses is with our time. All of us are busy. We have a lot of different things going on. I think about the widow's might, the story out of the Gospel of Mark, where there's this woman who goes up to the, the treasury of the temple and she puts in a couple small coins and Jesus sees her and says, see that person, like they put in a couple small coins. But that's all that she has. She's given it. Out of, her, out of her poverty, she's been generous. I think for a lot of us, there's a poverty of time that exists, and that's what we give out of. Like, it's easy to look at our schedule and be like, wow, things are so busy. I don't have time to go work with this other organization to help volunteer here, to be part of this food drive. But when we do that, God blesses those moments. Are there places where your ministry has interaction with the broader community? And then as a question, just as a parish as a whole, again, if you're just a person who's not involved in a ministry, are there ministries that this parish could take up that you could champion that provide a meaningful interaction with the community that is not explicitly faith-based? That is, it's welcoming to other people who maybe wouldn't walk through the doors of a church or even walk through the doors of something that's faith-based. I love theology on taps for this reason. We used to do a theology on tap at an Irish pub, Kathy's, and it was not very big. And so what would happen is we'd be having this conversation about Jesus, heaven, hell, purgatory, the last things, whatever, and there'd be a bunch of people after work, you know, sipping on Guinness who have no affiliation with the church whatsoever, and they're all looking over their shoulders. Walter was at one. Walter was at a theology on tap, and Walter was in his late 70s, early 80s. And so we're sitting, and the community that I, I went to, and often the people who went to theology on tap, a young adult event, were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. We had an older community, and, and so our theology on taps were a beautiful mix of people of all generations. So Walter didn't seem out of place. And Walter, as we're asking a question about the last things, having Helen Purgatory, I'm leaving this discussion, 22 years old, dimply, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And I said, uh, hey, what do you think happens when you die? Because I'm thinking I'm addressing a group of faithful Catholics, which Walter was once. And so I get to Walter, and he says nothing. <laughs> nothing happens when you die. He then went on to tell us how he became an atheist after giving God up for the summer after he had lost his friends in the war. His entire like battalion, or, or his entire immediate group had been killed. He was the only one left. 
So when he got back from his deployment, he said, I'm giving God up for the summer. I don't know how God could exist in a world like this. He's like, and I never went back, which is interesting. A little bit tense. People in the room were like, oh boy, here we go. And he looks at me and he goes, how can you justify the existence of God in a world where there were concentration camps, where there was so much suffering? So I gave him an answer that must have been satisfactory on some level because he stayed and he came back again and again. And then the next summer when we did the Theology on Tap, he came back on a walker, very frail, to every single one. Now his wife was a devout Catholic, came to Mass every single Sunday. He refused to go with her. Our priest was at the Theology on Taps, and they struck up a friendship, he and Walter. And then eventually, Walter wasn't coming to Theology on Tap anymore. Walter was in hospice care. And I'll never forget being at the rectory one night, sitting uh, with Father Dan, and he gets a call, and he's like, hey, say a prayer for me. Um, Walter's asked that I meet him at the hospital. I said, okay, I'll pray for you. He's gone for a couple hours. He comes back. I'm excited to know what happened. Like, what's this conversation like? I said, what happened? He goes, I can't really talk about it. And my hope, and I'll never know this, so the reason he couldn't talk about it is because the only circumstance really in which you wouldn't be able to share anything as a priest is under the seal of confession. And so it's my hope that Walter received that sacrament because he had started to ask questions of Father Dan about baptism, about faith, about life, about sin, about eternity. And perhaps in that moment, he experienced something a reconciliation, a healing of the hurt and the brokenness that he had felt for decades. Because there was a moment of meaningful interaction with the community. It can be easy to shelter ourselves in these walls as our specific ministries or as what we do on Sunday, but what do we do as a community to interface with the broader community at large? To just kind of be present, not to be in your face, but to say, hey, we're here, and if you're interested, come have a conversation or or we're serving alongside people of different, different denominations of, from different churches and we're able to have a dialogue because we're all united in a common ministry or a food drive or a clothing drive. So those are the questions I'd throw out to you to kind of reflect on past this day for a broader ministerial perspective. One, what are we doing as a local community to bless our local community both personally and ministerially? And are there things that St. Patrick community could do that they're not currently doing that would allow us even a greater way to be present in our community? that would aid to that question of people saying, please, you can never close down, it's too important. The second area we can look at is our households and thinking of some practical ideas for our households. And so I want you to take another second just to write down a couple of things in your journal. What are your current faith practices for your household? What things form kind of the stability of faith within your home right now? And take a couple seconds to write those down. And as you're writing them down, I also want you to think, where did they come from? Where did we get these things? Why, why do we do these things that we do? As you think through those things, 
I want to throw a couple of suggestions out for a household and what we can do practically for you to pray on over the next couple of days. This isn't something in a workshop. You're like, oh, like these are things I need to do. Three different practices you can implement. One, how does our home become a place that is a place of invitation? How does it become a place of invitation? A woman named Cindy has the most inviting home I know. She lives down here in Phoenix. She's actually my best friend's mom. They moved down here a couple of years ago, shortly after we did. And when you walk in her house, you're home. Like, you just know that. She makes sure you feel that way. Her practices of hospitality are just on point. Um, but she always makes sure that the invitation is extended. So I, I kind of throw that out one. How do you make your play home a place of invitation? If you pick up that book, Sticky Faith, that I talked about for parents and for grandparents, it's a great read because it even talks about how they've created, uh, this one set of parents has created such a culture of listening and invitation and acceptance that their kids' friends will come over and want to sit down and talk with their parents. Not about anything like earth-shattering, but just about life because they know that that's a safe place and a home. What are a couple of things you can do moving forward from here that make it a place of invitation? Two, what are some consistent prayer routines that if you don't have them now, maybe you have some that you can add to that are able, you're able to invite people into them. For us at our home, we say a meal prayer. We read a couple verses from, from sacred scripture every night. And then at the end of the evening, we, uh, we do blessings. We have holy water. We bless the kids. Now, what's cool about that is kids, especially if you have grandkids or you have like children now, are really impressionable. And so I don't get to do the first blessing anymore because my two-and-a-half-year-old son has to do it. So he gets his holy water, and he goes, and he blesses mom and dad and his sister and then himself, and then I do it as the, as the final kind of thing. Now, he got that from somewhere. He got that from my wife and I and seeing us do that as a consistent faith practice. And again, if your home is invitational, we have to have a couple of things to allow our faith to be not in your face but on display. It's about saying, this is a part of, of who I am. I want to invite you into that, to see that. And then the third thing that I would throw out to you for your home is how does it become, and we touched on this a little bit, a place of refuge. It's one thing to have a home that's inviting, where people can go and they feel like, I'm at home here. This is a good place where I can be. I can, I can feel welcomed, I can feel loved, but is your home a place where people can go when they have nowhere else to go? And the way to do this, it's very simple, is just telling people and meaning it. This is the most practical thing that you can do to making your household a place where people experience faith. It's letting them know, saying to your best friends, your family, your kids, because sometimes we think it's implied, right? especially with like our kids, your sons and your daughters maybe moved out. It's, it's implied to say, hey, of course you can always come home. Say it. The next time you're, you're talking to them or where it fits, just to say, I want you to know, like if anything ever happens in your life, anything goes, goes awry, or you just need a place to be, you can come here. I just want to let you know that. That's it. That's it. Or say to your friends, you know, if something ever happens, if you ever need anything, regardless of the time of day, regardless of when it is, you, you can come here. I just want to let you know that. That's something very powerful. And again, it's different than the invitation. Hey, I, I know I'm welcome for dinner. I know I'm at home here. But it's to say, my home can be a refuge for you when the waters of life get difficult, when they get rough, when they get scary. You can come here. 
Those are three places we can have a home field advantage there because there are three things that emulate who Christ was. Christ is our refuge, Christ is our invitation, and Christ invites the disciples into his rhythm of prayer. They see him praying one day, and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray in the Gospel of Luke. That's, I love that setup. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we get the Our Father as part of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Gospel of Luke, we get the Our Father when the disciples see Jesus praying, and they're like, could you teach us how to pray? Could you invite us into how you, could you, could you show us your routine of prayer? Because they've witnessed him do it. So we do those things, they build a household of faith. Here's the last place I want to spend a little bit more time on. How do you make your parish community? How do we really leverage the home field advantage there? So here's the first question. If you're involved in a ministry, this is your question. How does our ministry promote evangelization? How does our ministry promote the good news? Because we talked about that in the keynote, but I really want you to like dissect it now and explicitly know the way that this ministry promotes the gospel and helps people know Jesus is blank. That kind of mission statement is important. And if you're, you're like, I'm not really involved in a ministry, I'm not involved in something personally, in what ways does your life promote the gospel? In what ways do you take the gospel out of these walls into your day-to-day life? So if you're in a ministry, how does your ministry do it? If you're not in a ministry, just take a second to reflect on every Sunday when you leave here, how does your life kind of proclaim that gospel? Take a couple seconds just to jot a few notes and and reflect on that. I'll throw out a couple of things for us in general. Some, as I said, hospitality leads to evangelization. And when we're in our parish community, this is our home field. This is where we should be our best. You can't always control the conversation outside the doors, but you can control what happens within these walls. So for all of us, I think there's a couple things to examine, both ministerially, hospitality-wise, and then personally. The first thing is this. Within this church, every ministry should be pushing the other ones to be better. I was an assistant youth minister at a parish a while ago, and we had a very, like, real moment within a staff meeting when this line was uttered. The problem with the youth ministry program is it makes the other ministries look bad. <laughs> I was like, that, how's that a bad thing? Like, I'm looking around like, how would, what? We should be pushing ourselves in our various ministries to be the best. Our ministries deserve 100 Again, because if ministry is ordered towards death, the realization that someday one one person is going to go to eternity and we have an opportunity to make a tangible difference in their life today, then that should drive us. This this motivates us to be our best. Additionally, we need to kind of put aside sometimes ministerial envy. That was a struggle that we also faced at that particular parish. Well, how come the youth program gets this, this, and this? And for that particular parish, that was kind of a charism that we had decided upon as a staff, that youth and families were our number one priority. And so sometimes envy creeps in, though. Well, how come they get this? How come this gets that? How come the, the pastor's so focused on this particular ministry? You have to remember, again, we're many parts in one body. St. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, 
If one member suffers, if one ministry suffers and is not very good, then all suffer because we need all these parts. And if one member is honored, all are honored. If one ministry is winning and, and is successful, everybody in the church is successful. So to ask yourself, how are we doing? How are we looking at this evangelization? Are we giving things 100% in each of our ministries? And if we're not, what can get better? I think one of the most challenging things for a community is looking at ministries like that and saying, are there ministries too that no longer fulfill a need or a purpose? That are good things, but maybe are good things as a small group. At St. Francis, which is where I served, we had a group of women who got together to knit. And that's great, and it was a wonderful community for them. But when asked if they were open to new members, they were like, no. (laughs) Which is fine. They had a small group of people, a small group of women who had formed a really great small group community that upheld one another, and that's wonderful. But then you also have to have the difficult conversation of, well, from a parish perspective, this is a great small group. We'd encourage you to continue to meet, but we're not going to recognize you as like a ministry of the church. And that's tough. But it was a transition then just into somebody's home. Are there things maybe at this parish we look at for some of our leadership where we're like, I don't know that this serves a need anymore. Resources are limited. Your resources in your various ministries are limited. Your resources as a person, personally, again, are limited. Our time is. So we have to make sure we're spending those things well. And that's why I asked you to think about that evangelization. Are the things you're doing outside of these walls evangelizing? Is your ministry accomplishing that goal of evangelization? From a parish community perspective, we talk about hospitality. That's one of the pillars of St. Patrick's Catholic community. So what are your personal hospitality practices? What do they look like? When somebody walks in through the door, the ministers of hospitality are not just the ones wearing the pins or the green shirts or who say usher. It's you and it's me. I'll throw out a couple things because this is is one of the more challenging things for me when I sit in Mass on Sunday because I sit in Mass on Sunday with a couple of young kids. So usually my way of being hospitable is looking at people around me and being like, I'm sorry for what's about to happen. (laughs) But the cry room's just worse right now. So one, a couple of hospitality, best hospitality practices that I'll throw out for you in the pews. Like, and this is for everybody, not just in ministry that exists. But we can all champion these things. One is to make families a priority in welcoming them into your community. I will tell you something from having a couple of small kids, what's really challenging is I know that like I've been in masses where it's like, ah, kids are crying and like, this is distracting. But like, we don't always know the situations in which we're coming from where we have a couple of kids. You don't know what a person's circumstances are. You see a mom with a couple of young kids and you know, she doesn't have somebody there to help her or they're kind of getting unruly. Transformation can happen with people who walk in your doors if we look at kids as a priority. We're pro-life church. And I've met people who are like, I get that. You seem to care a lot more about babies when they're not born than when they are, which is tough and really convicting. Again, Father Dan, a great mentor of mine, like I said, stood up in front of our congregation one Sunday and he read a letter. Somebody had written about how wonderful and welcoming our parish was and it was just amazing and they were so thankful they discovered St. Francis of Assisi Parish. And everybody in the pews was like, very good, hey, can we just air fist bump? Thank you, Ethel, appreciate it. And then he read another letter about a a single mom who had showed up and said, I'll never come back again because the looks that I got with my daughter from one gentleman in particular in front of me, you don't believe anything you preach. And I want to let you know as pastor 
that I will never be back. But maybe you can help it so that this doesn't happen to somebody else. Again, we all have bad days. Like, it's going to happen. There's going to be days where I just don't want to be hospitable and I'm grumpy. And, and honestly, we come to Mass, we come to church, we're broken some days, and that's okay. But some of us have to be at our best. So I'm not saying if you come on a bad day and you're broken, not to kind of be prayerful and silent and somber. I'm saying when you come on a normal day and a good day, to be aware of your actions. So one, as a parish community, if you commit to families and saying we're going to welcome families and children, we're going we're to invite those people in, that's a good thing. It's tough for me when the first thing I do when I walk through a new parish is have, an, have somebody look at me and say, hi, the cry room's over here. Hi, my name's Joel. It's good to be here. And sometimes we use the cry room, but sometimes it's chaos. And it's hard for me to teach my son about mass there. Hey, the people in our section of the parish where we go have had a rough go of it with us for six months. But I'll tell you what, the looks have changed when my son gets up and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark, does this. He's two and a half. When he knows the responses to the prayers, when he knows the creed, it brings me great joy for my son to be able to say words that people have died saying. That's the faith I'm raising him in, a faith of the martyrs. He and my daughter will be warriors. They will need to be. But I need them to know it from a young age. So welcome people in, but provide places where they can go. It's good to have a cry room where people can go and like calm down the fussy baby. But commit to welcoming families. That's the first thing. The second thing is commit to praying for the people who walk through the pews. This one, oh, this is... One of the most uncomfortable moments I ever had in a Mass. I do this for a living. Professional minister. I walked into a parish in Columbus, Ohio once, and the pastor sat me down and said, I just want to let you know, we have this practice. Uh, I don't want to take you off guard. Before Mass starts, um, we're going to ask people to introduce themselves, as we did today. And um, then they're going to ask you what they can pray for you for. I was like, oh, what a cute practice. That's nice. Yeah, until the guy in front of me turned around and the conviction in his eyes was so sincere it wasn't a routine. He looked at me, he's like, hey man, how can I pray for you? And I was like, uh, again, I do this all the time. I'm taken aback and like shrinking into my shell. And then I like unload. I'm like, I just really miss my family. I've been traveling a lot. Can you please pray for me and pray for them? And I'm like, I just shared all that with a stranger. Because he cared. Now that may not be something you institute as an entire parish, but what if you were bold enough some Sundays to look at the person who sat down next to you and be like, hey, during this mass, can I pray for you for anything? Because maybe it's another parishioner at St. Pat's and they're like, what a cool thing. I was at that workshop too. You beat me to it. <laughs> but what if it's somebody who's walking in whose husband's just died? What if somebody's walking in who just miscarried? What if somebody's walking in who's just alone and abandoned? What if somebody's walking in who's contemplating suicide? And you don't just say, hi, welcome, my name is so-and-so because the music ministry asked us to introduce ourselves. Would you said, is there anything I can pray for you for? while we're here. Can I offer up my mass for you? That's hospitality, like, game changer. There's a very famous picture of some uh, baristas at a Dutch Brothers. Maybe you saw it a while ago. A woman pulled up through a Dutch Brothers. Dutch Brothers, if you, has anybody ever had Dutch Brothers? It makes me uncomfortable, the amount of, like, exchanges I have with their baristas. They, like, they're required to ask you three questions. Like, if you know anything about Dutch Brothers, like, they have to ask you three questions. And so they're like, what's up, bro? How's your weekend? I think it's fine. You do anything cool? Snowboarding? No, I'm not into that. <laughs> Rad, rad, cool, cool. You like snowboarding? No. <laughs> uh, a woman pulls up, she orders her drink at Dutch Brothers. 
She pulls up, and they're having this exchange. They have to ask the three questions, but it's clear the woman's like unsettled about something. And so they say, are you, like, are you okay? And she unloads, my husband passed away three days ago. And she's just there to get coffee, like to, to sustain her through the day. Oh, what comes next, though, becomes viral. Barista says, can we pray for you? And there's a shot, Google it, Dutch Brothers Prayer, of three baristas leaning out through a drive through window, putting hands on this woman's head and praying for her. That's radical hospitality, and that's not even at a church. Now, they can do it. A barista, a barista, Dutch bro barista, can do it. Ah, oh, man, so can we. So that's the second thing. Pray for people when they walk through the pews. And the third thing is get to know the people around you. I know I joke about routine, but like we sit in pretty much the same sections, folks. We know that we do. Because I'm comfortable there, I know the people there. But do you know the people there? Again, I, live, I love St. Patrick's Catholic community. I live 50 minutes away, unfortunately, which is just a killer for an hour and a 40-minute round trip with a couple of kids. Otherwise, I'd join you for Mass more frequently. Uh, I go to St. Tim's down in Mesa. It's 10 minutes away from my house. Um, our pastor there told a story a couple weeks ago about a woman who had sat in the same section for years and then one day stopped showing up. Everybody's like, where is she? I don't know where she is. Several months later, they found out she died of cancer. But nobody knew. Nobody in the, the people sat next to her every single Sunday. Nobody knew. The priest didn't even know. And he lamented that. He said, I should have known. I saw her every week. I saw her sitting right there. I should have said something. I should have said, hey, how are you? I see you every single week. Do you know the people in the section with you? Who's sitting with you? What is their name? They have a family. These are simple things you can ask as we're getting started before Mass or even after Mass. It does require a bold first move, though. Something uncomfortable, breaking out of the Jesus box, looking at somebody and saying, hey, I sit next to you every single week. My name's Joel. I just want to introduce myself. People are longing for this kind of community, but the people who are sitting next to you are scared. But you're here on a Saturday morning. What if you got to know them? You said, hey, how are you? I just want to encourage you with your like young kids. Hey, how are you? I noticed you always came with your husband, um, but haven't been. Is he okay? Those go from having just a place where I go to, to worship to a community that I worship with. So I'd throw out those three things, and I'd give you a second today as you pray through the rest of today to think about that. How am I being inviting to the people who sit next to me? Like, what is my disposition, especially to families and to young children? There used to be a time, statistically speaking, in the church where young families would come back to get their kids baptized. They would. It's not the case anymore. We used to really believe this as a church, and we're starting to come around. We're like, well, they'll come back when, you know, those young adults will come back when they need their kids baptized. They don't see the need anymore. So what are we going to do when they walk in? Namely to say, you don't know who you don't know. You don't know their story, but you can be the first encounter point. A smile, a nod. Hey, your kid looks cute with all that stuff on their face. It's on, it's on YouTube. <laughs> you know, those are good things. Those are powerful things. To reserve judgment from people when they walk in. To greet the people next to us even before we're asked to do that. I know it's powerful when, like, you know, uh, the, the music minister says, hey, let's stand up and greet each other. But, like, sometimes to a newcomer, that can feel a little forced. But there's something different, like, you know, if somebody sits down, who's like not clearly, if somebody sits down and they're like clearly in prayer, you know, poking at them and be like, hey, real quick, shake my hand. Um, that doesn't always work. 
But like, there's something even more powerful about I'm taking the initiative. Somebody's not asking me to introduce myself to you. I'd really like to. Second, ask people what you can pray for them for. I think that's a beautiful practice, but it speaks highly to community. You can do that outside of community, too. You don't have to do that at Mass. I think one of the most underused things we have as far as, again, going back to the local communities, asking people what we can do to pray for them. I have a friend named Andrew, and Andrew has a story written about him in a book about miraculous healing. It's the first story. He was on a beach in Southern California, and he saw a woman in a wheelchair. And he went up, and he said, can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? And he boldly asked that God would heal her, and God did. Dr. Dr. Mary Healy, a professor at a seminary, writes about the story in her book about miraculous healing. That's pretty bold faith. That's salt and light. That doesn't always happen. It's not like we're going to go up to somebody and be like, hey, let me pray for you to be healed. But even just to see people who are afflicted to say, can I pray for you? Now, Andrew's a good guy, and Andrew does this frequently because he's bold. I've also seen him get rejected really hard, also in California. <laughs> hey, I'm going to go. I feel like I'm, I want to go ask to pray with that person. Okay, comes back. Yeah, she doesn't talk, but her son and daughter said they're not religious and they don't want me to pray with her. Okay. And you know what he did? Went right back to having our conversations as though nothing had happened. He's like, I'm still going to pray for her, but it's not like that. So that's a bold thing to do. And then the third thing to do is to learn the people who are next to you. Learn who's in your community. Ask who's in your section. Take time to meet people after Mass. I get that that's super uncomfortable. I used to have to do it to recruit core members for the youth program, which is even more uncomfortable. Hi, how are you? You go to Daily Mass in Lacoli. Would you like to serve middle school students? <laughs> I'm actually switching parishes right now, so no. <laughs> I get that. But those conversations, you know, we need those things, my friends. So I'd throw those things out. I want you, as you go forward, to think about some of these suggestions for how you can be salt in our local community. It's important. Personally, get involved in other initiatives outside of St. Patrick's that allow you to represent St. Patrick's Catholic community because that will catch people. Ask yourself, are there things that our Catholic community could be doing that I could propose to Father Eric or our board to say, this is an idea that I've had. Um, I'd love to champion it. They'll love that. <laughs> Priests will always listen, and their next question is going to be like, would you like to run that? And you can be like, yes, I would. I'd like to run this ministry that opens up our doors and allows us to be a part of the community. Two things for local community. A couple things for home. What's our prayer routine? Are we inviting and are we a refuge? And then for our parish community, introductions and welcoming families, praying with one another and praying for one another, and then getting to know those who are in our section. If we can do those practices, we take these mission fields, you have a home field advantage in all of them. Jesus says, don't be, St. Paul says, we're in the world, but don't be conformed to the world. That whole, like, we're in the world, but not of the world, that's, it's not exactly how that appears in scriptures. Don't be conformed to the world, because you're above it, but you're in it, to be salt and to be light. In your homes, you're a place of refuge in a domestic church that proclaims who God is, and in our parish, well, this is, this is where we can be our best and we can lead people to the table. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord God, I thank you for today. I thank you for all of the people who have gathered here. I ask that you bless their journeys, their intentions, help them to be salt and to be light, and just continue to guide them and to guide this great community that you've placed here in Scottsdale to bless the community, to bless the families within it, and to continue to be a beacon of hope for all of those who need it. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, and Son, Holy Spirit.